Welcome to the Third Turn Podcast and today's conversation with David S. Bell. Your hosts are Kristen Evenson, an executive coach trained in the neuroscience of change, and Mark L. Vincent, an executive advisor and author of the forthcoming book, Listening, Helping, and Learning. Kristen, it's a bonus when we get to have a conversation with people we know and trust. And today it is with David Bell. David is a partner with me and others in Design Group International. He is also the president and executive director of the United Methodist Foundation of Michigan. And I was reading through his bio, with which I've been familiar for a long time, and just was noting that if we start listing the certifications that he has, especially in financial advising, the board service that he's brought, his love for higher ed and for the church. If we started listing all of that, we'd use up the podcast. So uh, we're going to put it this way. If you have, if you as a listener have any intention to be generous with the income or the estate that you have, uh, and you want to do some heavy thinking on this and some good application on this, find David S. Bell on LinkedIn or go to his website, davidsbell.org, and you can add some of his many articles to your reading list. There are so many resources that he points to. Well, that's a great introduction, David, and makes me all the more interested to chat with you today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kristen and Mark. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I look forward to sharing in this next few minutes and conversation. Well, Mark has the benefit of lots of years experience uh, with you and background with you, David. I would love to get a little more acquainted with you. Can you just start by telling us what should we know about you and maybe where you are and your family or anything kind of important? Great. Well, we've moved around the country a bit, and those moves have been primarily around position changes with the United Methodist Church. I'm an elder, an ordained uh, pastor in the United Methodist Church, but for most of my ministry, I've really served in what we call extension ministry or uh, not specifically in the local church. My mission is helping faithful leaders live generous lives. And I've been able to live out that mission uh, through various positions with the United Methodist Church, both from the local church, as well as a regional position, a national position, and now with the United Methodist Foundation of Michigan. And I'm sure we'll talk about my connection then to Design Group International. I'm married and have two, two kids, one about to go off to college and uh, one who will be a rising senior in college. You know, along with that, it's always nice to hear in, in our vernacular about the three turns of leadership. Would you share, David, like what, how would you describe your three chapters of leadership and what specifically in that context brought you to Design Group International and to the United Methodist Foundation of Michigan? Well, I think the first turn is around leading self. And when I think about leading myself, I've really focused on education. So for me, being a continuous learner has been a really significant part of both learning about myself and really growing into my, my work. So that started at a pretty young age, as, as we might imagine. But then as I went off to undergrad school and worked on my master's degree, that education was important. But then even uh, later in, in life, I've pursued 
um, certificates through Case Western Reserve University and some postgraduate work. And so that role of being a continuous learner has been really important to leading uh, self. I think also spiritual direction and in uh, finding work-life balance has been important in that. When I think about uh, the second turn, leading people and organizations, uh, I, I'm an extrovert. I love to be around people. I, I gain energy from being with people. So it's been really pretty natural for me to, to be in leadership positions that have helped lead people. When I think about organizations, I'm a very detailed person and I tend to be a vision caster. So uh, casting vision, encouraging people to live into that vision has been an important aspect of the second turn. And the third turn, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm fully into that third turn yet. I think about legacy and I'm thinking about ways that my work will make a lasting impact, but I'm still really discovering what that legacy will be. When I think about my connection to Design Group International, that really began during the second turn when I was offered the opportunity to come uh, serve as president and executive director of the United Methodist Foundation of Michigan. This organization has a long history of the CEO of the organization serving outside of the foundation. It's a mutual benefit. One grows by providing service beyond the foundation and, and learns things there that then can be brought back to the foundation. Uh, Mark and I have known each other a number of years prior to my move to this foundation. And so when I was pondering moving to the foundation, one of the things that really paired nicely with that was becoming a partner in Design Group International. Well, and tell us a little bit more about the foundation, if you would, you know, maybe the size and scope and, and kind of what's involved with your leadership there, if you would, David. So one measure of a foundation is often the assets that are under management of a foundation. And so this foundation has a, a little better than $170 million of assets that are under investment. But I would describe our ministry really in terms of three um, major areas. The first is really helping individuals think about their third turn, think about their legacy and how generosity connects to that legacy. So I spend a fair amount of my time working with individuals around their own estate planning and around their own charitable giving. That's one major area of our foundation work. A second major area of foundation work is really anything related to money in the local church except spending it. So I often talk about investing funds, raising funds, uh, best practices around finances. That's a second major area. And then the third area is really the most exciting. It's how we impact people's lives through scholarships, awards, and grants. Our primary focus is around clergy leadership, so you'll find that most of the grants and awards that we are providing are really focused at strengthening clergy leadership, clergy personal financial acumen. No, the second part was around more about the foundation broader than the United Methodist Foundation. The United Methodist Foundation of Michigan is part of a national association, the National Association of United Methodist Foundations. There are about 40 to 45 regional foundations across the country. 
So every part of the United States is served by United Methodist Foundation. Altogether, we have about $4 billion of assets under management and provide everything from this type of uh, legacy, helping individuals to leadership development, to asset management in a value aligned and socially responsible way. And am I right then, David, did you prepare for pastoral ministry and then find yourself kind of on the foundation side? So I do have a master of divinity and I, and I did pursue ordination and that always was the plan. But really my call to ministry from a very young age, high school, was not particularly in serving the local church, but really in serving those who serve the local church. Hmm. So I've had more of a balcony view, I would say, and looking to make a wider impact on leaders. So I did serve a local church, but out of my 30 plus years of of ministry, the time in a local church is minuscule uh, compared to my time in executive leadership. Yeah, sounds very astute of you as even a a high school student to kind of realize the place within that you were called to. Kristen, if I could, I'm going to add a first turn story about Dave that brought great laughter to everybody in Design Group International a few years ago. We had a talent show. Vicki Vandywater, who was our administrator at the time in Design Group International, decided she would do some food stuff. And so she brought uh, ice cream and and led some kind of ice cream dipping contest. And she thought, you know, Dave, he is so buttoned down and so knowledgeable about many things. I'm going to get playful here and have him be one of the contestants for dipping ice cream, not knowing that one of uh, David's first jobs because of the home he grew up in was at a Baskin Robbins. And so <laughs> putting on the hat, putting on the apron, dipping the ice cream, he won hands down. I will never forget that. That was so fun. That's a fun, fun story, Mark. And the truth is that what I learned from, from being in a small family business, the work ethic and the entrepreneurship, those are things that really have stuck with me over the years and that I probably draw on most every day. Gosh, those first jobs, right? I mean, mine was cleaning hotel rooms, and it's a seminal experience that we can hearken back to, and we learn some really core things that benefit us the rest of our lives in some really strange places sometimes. David, you strike me as a real kind of left brain, right brain guy, so it doesn't surprise me that you've, I guess, done some extensive work with emotional intelligence. I just am curious, how do you bring that, or what inspired that for you, and how do you bring that to your work? Well, emotional intelligence is just another example of me in that first turn around leading self and saying that education is so important. And listening to people is such a key to leadership that I felt as though I needed to be even more prepared to actively listen and respond and come alongside people and be able to help them. And emotional intelligence, I learned early in my undergraduate years in a psychology course, was one place that is really a differentiating factor among leaders. So I was privileged to study that at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. 
and obtained a, a graduate certificate in, in emotional intelligence. And the principles that I learned from that are the, the things that I really take from that in conversations with leaders as well as with potential donors or people looking to make a legacy difference. I think there really are four. The first is just self-awareness, being aware of myself knowing the emotion that I'm bringing into that conversation. And the second is really showing empathy, really listening so deeply that one can have empathy uh, toward the person who's sharing. I think the third is around self-control. So really being able to emotionally modulate my response in the midst of that conversation. And the fourth, which may sound manipulative, but it isn't intended this way at all, is influence. And by influence, I, I really mean a positive guidance and reflecting back to the person that you're having a conversation with what you're really hearing. And if you're able to share that back, they will be influenced by their own thoughts that they may not have really put together before. Well, and it makes me curious, are you, do you find like, what's the range of perspectives that you find in families and organizations you work with? Or is this generally a pretty tender conversation for people? Is it a inspired, is it an avoidance kind of mentality? Or what do you see as the range there, presenting range? It's all of those. <laughs> Um, just like people are different, their response is different. The one thing that I would note is when one is talking about estate planning, their emotions tend to be high hmm. or their response tends to be higher. So if they're a non-emotive person, they tend to be even more non-emotive. Hmm. If they're a highly emotional person, then they will be even more emotive. So there's an exaggeration, I think, that happens in the, in the moment of really talking about estate planning or about legacy. Hmm. Hence the need for emotional intelligence to kind of sort through all that and <laughs> dig beneath that, right? It helps. Um, yeah. <laughs> Today, we're talking with David S. Bell, a senior design partner with Design Group International and the president and executive director of the United Methodist Foundation of Michigan. We will be back after this brief word from the Society for Process Consulting. Continuing our conversation now with David S. Bell. Dave, I have so many memories of conversations, uh, especially in Florida when we were attending conferences together. And we were working at the ideas of how generosity is cultivated, how it is educated in a sense, how people finally arrive at that moment when they uh, want to be a steward. And one of the aspects of that then is how you actually live with it, how you carry it out. And so I wanted to ask you what you've learned with all the people you've worked with about why it is that so many competent professionals keep delaying their estate and charitable giving plans. But just as soon as that comes out of my mouth, I want to say it in a positive way rather than raising it as a negative issue. So let me try it that way. What are the advantages for a savvy executive leader to get started early 
with their estate and charitable plans? Well, let's let's look at both of those questions. If if we really start with the negative, the reason that people put this off is because it deals with our mortality. And most people don't want to face their own mortality. So one of the biggest drivers for not completing an estate plan is the avoidance of our own mortality, which is why I believe the church has such an important role in helping people formulate estate plans. Because if the church is providing uh, seminars or opportunities for people to learn about estate planning, it also provides the church with the opportunity to help people think theologically about our mortality. So in my mind, connecting the church and estate planning is really ideal because it does speak then uh, both to the practical necessity of an estate plan as well as the theological and spiritual underpinnings of, of our faith. That's a huge reason why it's, it's avoided. I think a second reason is choices are necessary when creating an estate plan. And for many people uh, making those choices, especially between family members whom they love, can be challenging. So now let's talk about positive reasons. Why, why would anyone want to uh, begin with an estate plan? Uh, one, because a, a plan is better than no plan. That's just the simple truth. There also are lots of other possibilities, like this could lead to uh, generational wealth. It also can lead to generational generosity. It can lead to both of those at, at the same time as well. It also provides a sense of peace of mind. And when we think about estate planning, we tend to think about just the end of life. So how we're dealing with things after someone has passed away. But there are some major components of an estate plan that deal with this thin space, this sacred space, when a person is not well and may not be competent, but it has not died. And so things like uh, durable powers of attorney for health care and living will and advanced directives, those become essential components of a full estate plan. Dave, you're making me think about some of the work that Daniel Kahneman has done on prospect theory. And maybe that's in play here, the, the negative side of, I uh, don't want to think about this stuff. In prospect theory, we'd say you don't do that until it's too painful not to do it. So at the moment that you're really facing it, now let's get all the documents together. Uh, and sometimes, of course, people miss that because their demise happens before they get the documentation done and it creates problems. But on the opportunity side, if you learn to go after opportunity, then you get planful and you say, hey, something like this could happen uh, that could be good for us. So let's get started early and you know build this over the long term. I remember as a child, my my father, who was an estate planner, and Dave, you've met my dad, uh, he, he said, you will not get married without some kind of life insurance in place, and just mandated it. And for a while, I felt insurance poor. But, you know, with my first wife's passing, 
I was so glad we had the estate started from the beginning. It made a real big difference for us. Uh, I just wonder if you could reflect on that aspect of it a little bit, this starting early and being planful. In my own situation, I mentioned earlier that I have a college-age daughter. My college-age daughter has a full estate plan, which some people may think is rather pointless or senseless. But it's this thin space where an accident could occur, and these documents then would have some impact. It's just simply starting the practice early in life so that it doesn't become so threatening later in life. I'm amazed how many calls I receive from people with a sense of urgency to get their estate plan in order or who want to talk about um, their generous legacy. In most of those conversations, the impetus for making that call to me is because someone close to them has passed away in the past year or two. And that has created this sense of urgency. So starting early in life, you can avoid that sense of urgency and it just becomes part of the normal routine of life that that becomes updated over uh, the course of life. Okay, now I'm really mindful that I've got six young adults I love and several of them are married, I think. I know what's going to be happening around Christmas time this year. (laughs) We're going to get these estate plans in place. That's a great thing. Thank you. And it doesn't have to be real expensive or it doesn't have to to be a, a widely comprehensive plan that includes pages and pages and pages of documents. It really can be a relatively simple process and cost effective as well. That's a really interesting idea to start the practice early. I also want to, you know, help make this kind of practical right here. Um, there are words like foundation and trust that can seem simple, but in context of estate planning, have very different roles and and strategies. So, would you give us a little insight on that, David? Sure. I think for foundations, there are really two types of foundations in the United States. There are private foundations and there are public foundations. Essentially, the business of a foundation is to do good. It's to make a difference either in people or organizations' lives. And it does that primarily through uh, charitable giving, through grant programs, scholarship programs. So most all of the listeners can probably think of some community foundation that has made a difference in the life of their community. That may be the the best example of a a public foundation. Uh, Private foundations, these tend to be family foundations. And one of the great strengths of a private family foundation is the possibility of, of generations of philanthropy and one generation instructing a future generation about what it means to be a generous steward. When I think about trust, a trust are complicated because there's so many different varieties of trust. But let's just remove a legal understanding of trust. And one of the images that I like to use of a trust is imagining a bucket and taking a bucket to the beach. 
and going on a, a walk on, on the beach and just finding interesting things along the beach that you put in the bucket just to hold there. So you may be walking along uh, the beach and depending what that beach is like, it may be some special rocks, it may be some special shells, it may be a piece of driftwood. It could even be an empty uh, plastic water bottle that you intend to recycle later. But along your walk, you gather a variety of things and place them in the bucket. As you leave the beach, you may find a recycling bin, so you drop the plastic water bottle in that. You may even share some of the things out of your bucket with someone else. Someone else may have collected different items in their bucket on their beach walk, and they may give you some of those things which you place in your bucket. That bucket mirrors a trust. But instead of shells and driftwood and a recycled plastic bottle, really what's inside that bucket are assets. Assets like stocks, bonds, mutual funds, savings accounts, perhaps some property. And you control that bucket throughout your life. And at some point when you uh, pass away, that bucket can be passed on to others. One of the great gifts of, of the bucket is it doesn't have to be emptied right away. It can exist for a long time into the future. So maybe that analogy will help people just think about uh, collecting their assets, having them in this bucket that they control during their life, but after their passing, someone else controls the bucket and distributes things from the bucket according to the rules and choices that the individual made during his or her lifetime. Well, David, I have to say, as someone who's in the midst of estate planning, another chapter of that, and someone who loves the beach, I am absolutely <laughs> embracing. You just brought totally fresh perspective to me. I, I'm a beach bucket kind of gal. So um, I love that. Thank you. That's very helpful to me. And I'm sure, <laughs> I hope it will be to our listeners as well. I hope so too. Let's pick up on one more word here. Let's just use the word generosity. We've talked about it. It's been kind of in the, the milieu of what we've been discussing today, but I'd love to hear you one more time talk very specifically about generosity as a quality of life for a person and then maybe tailor it a little bit to this person who's in this maestro level leader, third turn place. How can they have a unique expression of generosity at that time of their life and career? So for me, generosity is a spiritual discipline. It's a way of being. It is a lifestyle choice. And it's less about money and more about attitude. So oftentimes when we think of generosity, we, we think of major donors, of lots of money being transferred. But generosity really is a life perspective. So here's just a very quick story uh, about generosity in the life of a local church. I, I was keynoting a, a conference that was being held in a local church and the tech person was there before I arrived. And when I uh, arrived, the tech person was just incredibly helpful to me, 
not just from a tech perspective, but from a hospitality perspective. Throughout the day, just making sure that any need that I had was, was met. He embraced a generous spirit. He had a generous heart. Well, at the end of the day, uh, one of the follow-up questions from the pastor of that church was uh, really built out of frustration, frustration in trying to create a generosity team for the church and asking me just how do you go about creating that? And so I lifted this tech person up as a great example of a person to serve on their generosity team. That was an incredibly fresh idea to this pastor because the pastor had been looking for the largest donors, the people who had the highest capacity to give. Now, I'm not suggesting that you don't need a few of those people on a generosity team in the local church. You do, but you also need every person to have a generous spirit. So now as, as folks are coming into their third turn, I think the question is, how have you cultivated the spiritual discipline of generosity in your life? And how is that manifesting itself today and tomorrow? And if you can answer that, you probably have a pretty strong legacy ahead of you. Dave, I'm struck with how, as a person thinks about generosity, they may have different kinds of economic assets in mind. So many people might think, well, this is what my income is after I cash my paycheck and now I've deposited it in the bank. Folks who are in that maestro level leader space, they have many other assets. In fact, what they have is take home pay may be small in comparison to uh, what they have by the way of stock options or if they're moving into some kind of retirement mode, what they might have in investment. Uh, but if they're also at the helm of an organization and there are shares that are involved, there is um, the assets of the business and its profits and so forth. And if they're like a sole owner, sole proprietor or a majority shareholder, there are many, many other assets that are in play where this discipline of generosity can be lived and um, you spend a lot of time with people who are in that mode, where they're, where they're trying to actually get a catalog of something they've never added up, and they're discovering just how, how much capacity they have to be generous. What do you find yourself doing as a leader, as someone who's paying attention to emotional intelligence, as one who cares pastorally as well as professionally for people? Where, what do you find yourself emphasizing the most in those moments? Well, with people like you've described, if we're able to come alongside them and help them solve what for them seems like a problem, they have so much and how do they do good with what they have, if, if you will. And if we are able to create a plan it becomes an incredibly freeing experience for them. So I think my role in coming alongside those people in their third turn is helping them discover what it is to be free. And one of the ways that we do that is by helping them be generous. 
So there's some very practical things to, to look at there around um, what assets they have and which ones make the most sense to gift to charity and which ones make the most sense to pass on to family, loved ones, or, or others. So there are practical steps, but amid the practical steps, what I constantly am keeping in mind is that this ultimately is about helping them live into a spiritual discipline and discover freedom. And it's through that discovery of freedom that they really have a peace of mind. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been great to have you here. And as you know, we often ask these turning point questions of our guests just to get another side of them. And so we're going to shift to those now. In this podcast episode, we found out that you dipped ice cream, that you work for the denomination and at a judicatory and a denominational or national level. Now you are running a financial foundation on behalf of the United Methodists of Michigan. But if there was another interest or a different role that you might have pursued at some point in your life, if circumstances were different, what might you have been doing? Probably it was my uh, junior year of college that I had the the most quandary into looking into a different uh, profession. So from from a serious perspective, I I did uh, consider the possibility of clinical psychology and and being a, a therapist. So that was an avenue that that I pursued and and had an internship in clinical psychology when I was in college and. So professionally, if I was going to head a different direction early in life, that's what it would have been. I, I also considered then within the denomination, other opportunities for leadership, uh, possibly headed down higher education and in college presidency or, or leadership in some way in higher education. Uh, the fun side of me, I, I really enjoy sports. So when I was in college, I was a basketball uh, official for middle school and high school. And the, the fun side of me, uh, that would be great fun to have, have gone into officiating full time. Uh, I had some experience early in life as a bat boy for a couple of professional baseball teams at Kansas City Royals and the Cleveland Indians and enjoyed my years of doing that. And I've continued to be a great sports follower, especially of, of college uh, sports. Dave, after a career of leading in a variety of ways, is there a leadership lesson you wish you had learned earlier? We haven't talked about this area really at all, but family systems theory is an important concept that I learned in seminary. It, it was really coming into fruition uh, right in the midst of, of my seminary years. And the concept of self-differentiation that is a component of family systems theory, which essentially means just getting in the balcony and keeping a balcony view. I wish I had learned that early in my professional career. I think it would have changed some relationships that were challenging early in my ministry. And when I look now to, to uh, having a college age uh, kid and her uh, friends and the lives of college students, 
I, I see that need for self-differentiation and the balcony view as a really important quality that will serve people well in their relationships, both person, personally and professionally. Dave, what is the current book you're reading and why did you choose it? Well, let me tell you a book that I'm really looking forward to reading. And now I'm going to do just a quick pitch here for Mark uh, L. Vincent. So his <laughs> listening, helping, learning book on process consulting is in the midst of being published. And that's a book that I just can't wait to read. So I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Dave, thanks for that shameless plug of Mark's upcoming book, um, soon to be published. And thank you for the work you do and the insights and fresh perspectives that you've shared today that have been helpful to me and I'm sure our listeners as well. Well, it's my delight to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. We will put the link to things like your website, davidsbell.org as well as other resources that you've shared with us uh, in the episode summary. And for those of our listeners who are interested there, David has at his uh, davidsbell.org website, special resource of generosity prayers that he's developed through the years, if that's of interest. Maestro Level Leader cohorts continue to form and you can learn more at maestroleveleaders.com. Mark and I would love to start a conversation or answer any questions for you about that. The Third Turn Podcast is a production of Design Group International, and we welcome your sharing these episodes, your subscriptions, as well as your suggestions at thirdturnpodcast.com. Jennifer Miller is our producer, and our sound engineer is Josh Brinkman. We look forward to returning to the conversation with you in another two weeks. This is for our grandchildren's grandchildren. Good job.